Good morning. Welcome to the Martirio podcast. My name is Brett McCaw. I'm joined with Father Jason Sharon. This is actually our first podcast, and I guess uh, as one may expect, explaining the meaning of our title, Martirio. Martirio comes from the infinitive coin Greek, Martirio, which is to witness. We find this in scripture, especially in John 1, where it is explained that John the forerunner, John the Baptist, witnessed to he who was the word made flesh and the light of life. And of course, it's no coincidence that from that term, martyrio, that we get in English, our term martyr, which, of course, we know those are the holy ones who have suffered for the sake of Christ, but they suffered first and foremost because they gave witness to him who was the light of nations. And so we begin this podcast. Father, welcome. Thank you for having me, Brett. We're excited uh, that all of our listeners are going to have a chance to um, hopefully hear a perspective that they may never have heard up to this point. And it's a perspective that is um, you know, robustly uh, Catholic, that is uh, decidedly Eastern in our um, perspective, um, but at the same time engaged with the, uh, the events that are unfolding in the world around us. So uh, we, we hope that um, you, our audience, will enjoy uh, listening to this as much as we enjoy producing it. Father, could you open us up in a prayer as we begin this time together? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For thou dost judge the peoples with equity, and guide the nations upon the earth. In the name of the Father, Son. <laughs> Gesundheit. Well, it's, and Holy it's, Spirit. Amen. You see, the Spirit is kind of um, unpredictable sometimes. <laughs> that's and, right. And sends all kinds of inspirations upon us, some of which are uh, uh, an unexpected sneeze. Well, it's a sign that spring is here. It's probably all of those willows that you had uh, setting out in, uh, you know, for, for Palm Sunday. So, uh, well, along those lines, in terms of where do we find ourselves right now, we are... Uh, recording this on Holy Tuesday, so Tuesday of Holy Week. Um, if we're honest, um, this is the fruit or result of uh, many, many trial and error attempts to successfully uh, record our first podcast. Um, hopefully this one will work and we'll get it posted onto our podcast channel. Uh, but we are here at Holy Tuesday, a uh, couple days out from from uh, Holy Pascha, uh, celebration of our Lord's glorious and triumphant resurrection. Obviously, in the world, we find ourselves in uniquely historical times. Uh, of course, while we don't want to make our podcast solely on current events and uh, political punditry, if you will. Uh, our own church, which is the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church, very much, I would say, relevant and tied to the events that are transpiring here at the early half of 2022. Of course, we know on February 24th, the Russian Federation uh, engaged in a an attack of naked aggression, of full-out warfare upon the nation of Ukraine. This was after months of military buildup along its border. And so now we find ourselves close to, I think, day 45, 46, in a war that has seen more than its fair share of carnage, has taken thousands upon thousands of lives militarily on both sides, um, and not to mention, most poignantly, uh, the lives of innocents. And so uh, it's nearly impossible to 
overlook that, um, and to speak into where we find ourselves and uh, how can we as Catholics understand and engage with this conflict, um, especially you know, from our own perspective as uh, members of a church uh, who are intimately connected and um, intimately related in many ways in, in, in the case of, of yourself and myself, Father, both married to uh, Ukrainian women, um, both from, uh, from the homeland of Ukraine. So how have you seen how things have transpired, Father? Well, it, it's been um, a good Friday um, moment in history in that uh, you see the, the sheer savagery that comes out of the human heart, um, the sheer inhumanity of humanity, the brutality of, of the passions played out visibly um, with the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the atrocities committed by the Russian soldiers, um, the, 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 the scale of, of horror. Um, it, it's definitely a Good Friday um, moment and in my eyes uh, the, this past month month and a half um, and at the same time I you know I speaking with people in Ukraine and just with my, in my own eyes you know I, I can see that it's also an Easter an Easter Sunday morning uh, because the, the the scale of, of goodness that's been poured out um, upon Ukraine from people across the world has been um, astounding uh, to see the um, you know our world community coming together um, has been truly edifying and uh, a source of of consolation. Um, people from across political spectrums, people from uh, different religions, um, you know, uh, people who who know not one another, uh, coming together to to help people who are clearly uh, victims, uh, and that that's been. Uh, consoling but uh, so for me it, it's been um, you know a, a storm of emotions and I think I speak for a lot of a lot of people um, who are connected to uh, Ukraine um, just the uh, the witnessing these these two extremities of, of the human experience of barbarity and uh, generosity I don't think people really um, are are, are ready for all the details that are going to come out regarding you know the the uh the the brutality that the russians have been doing um and uh their, their propaganda campaign has um you know cast doubt on the uh the the, the claims of the ukrainians about you know what's really happening and, and people have to uh hopefully through through broadcasts like this will be able to you know cut through the uh, you know the clouds and the smoke and, and get down to uh, uh, the reality of, of uh, what's actually happening. Now, you yourself, Father, you were actually in Ukraine about a month ago, right? Yeah. Um, the invasion started February 24th. Uh, we were there by uh, February 27th. Oh, that's right. Within three, three days yeah. of the, uh, the invasion. Yeah, yeah, we went in. Alan, a uh, parishioner of ours, uh, Alan and I went in uh, on the Sunday, and uh, we were to rescue uh, one orphan girl that that uh, Alan was hoping to uh, to adopt and to, to bring her to safety. Um, and the the director of the orphanage said, "No, if you're going to rescue one orphan, then you had better rescue all 22." Mm -hmm. So then that snowballed into something um, altogether unexpected. Mm -hmm. which was, um, you know, an, an extraction event, you know, mm -hmm. trying to uh, extract 22 orphans out of a country to get them to safe harbor uh, temporarily mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in a neighboring country. You know, we weren't trying to circumvent the adoption process or international laws or anything like that. In fact, what we did was, was very, very much legal. Um, but uh, and in getting these 22 orphans out, uh, we ended up getting another 20... Uh, um, uh, 20 uh, uh, refugees uh, out as well. So people who uh, who were trying to, to escape the war, they ended up coming with us and uh, 
we went through a number of countries and, and uh, it, was, it was rather adventurous, but uh, um, uh, that's, that was our experience at the beginning of the war and uh, it was, uh, was life-changing. Yeah, you know, in many ways, what I think the rest of the global community has witnessed, um, and I use that term global community uh, with as much lightness as, uh, and levity as possible, um, but I think what the world has really witnessed over now, you know, the last month and a half, um, is a case in point of, of, of grit and determination and endurance uh, in a European nation, right? And we're all kind of inclined to conceive of Europe as a pretty comfortable place, right? The epitome of a post-industrial, you know, uh, liberal democratic capitalist system. Uh, obviously, I, I wouldn't put Ukraine entirely in that uh, in that category. It's uh, you know, certainly trying to develop towards well, that. Yeah. Well, it's where it's supposed to be at this point is history, like a child that's developing right. in the womb. You know, right. uh, that's you, right. You can't say uh, you know an eight month old in the womb isn't uh, you know as much a part of the family because he doesn't look like the four year old. Well, the four year old looks like what a four year old's supposed to look like, and an eight year old and an eight month old in the womb looks like what an eight month old in the womb should look like, and I think Ukraine is is uh, really uh, advanced for its its development at this point. Uh, in 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 well, and that's just my point. In in dimensions that oftentimes the world doesn't use, uh, quantitatively speaking, to qualify what an advanced developed society looks like, and I think that is hitting at the point of. Um, how the endurance of the Ukrainian people, its military as well, um, is uh, is demonstrating that those 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 old virtues, right, that created and sustained people and sustained nations. Um, so you know, I'll cut to the chase. I, you know, we are in day forty six or forty seven. I don't know if I'm getting the numeration correct. Um, Kiev was expected. To fall in forty-eight to seventy-two hours following yes, the was, yeah. February twenty-fourth uh, invasion, by universal acclamation of all the military experts in the world, and all of the diplomats as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, actually, there's a story coming out that um, I forget who the uh, uh, I think his name is Andriy Melnik. He's uh, he's the diplomat. He works for the Ukrainian diplomatic corps. And I think he's the Ukrainian diplomat to Germany. This came out like a couple weeks ago. And following hours following the initial salvos from the, the, the Russian side, the, the missile launches, and then finally the, the actual invasion, he went to his German counterpart and had asked for immediate assistance from the Germans. Now, if, if you remember the... The, the Berlin government was one of the lone sort of uh, obstacles, if you will, from you know getting as much military assistance as possible to the point where uh, they wouldn't even let, I think, their, their airspace be flown over for other countries like the UK to fly in weapons and ammunition and so forth. The German counterpart to the Ukrainian diplomat basically said, "You have forty-eight hours. Why? Why would we? Why would we? You know, contribute to mm -hmm. something that is futile, futile to begin with." Yeah. So that epitomizes the the kind of calculus that the rest of the world had, and yet now, as we stand today on April twelfth. Uh, Ukraine stands uh, so much to to the point where I think we can qualitatively say that the Ukrainians have have won the battle for Kiev. You know, Russia launched this incredibly ambitious, you know, three-axis attack on the country, hoping to kind of squeeze it Sphincter overnight. It. And of course, it had relative, and I say relative, success in the south but not significant. Um, 
not so much success in the East. And of course, their northern tier, which was supposed to be the kill shot, coming in from Belarus, going straight down the Dnipro Reservoir in the north to hit Kiev and take out Kiev and replace the government. That didn't happen. And in fact, they sustained so many losses that they made the decision to make a strategic retreat. Yep. So as I speak right now, and this this was a reality even a week ago, in, in the entirety of the Kiev and the Chernihiv Oblast, there are no more, which are the northern, centralmost uh, oblasts bordering the uh, the Ukrainian Belarusian border. There are no Russian troops present. They've they've pulled out, and and even those um, those victories the Russians have had in in southern Ukraine are not so much due to the Russian military as to Ukrainian treachery. Mm. Um, Kherson, the -hmm. city in the south, just north of Crimea, the only reason that the Russians are still there is because of uh, traitors within the Ukrainian ranks who would not blow up the bridge connecting Mm -hmm. Ukraine to Crimea. And uh, these people surrendered their responsibilities to the Russians and they enabled these people to come in. Uh, but had the the directorship of, of that area, the military directorship of Kherson um, and its city council been on page with the rest of the country, um, that southern part of the map would be very different today. Um, everywhere else, places deep like Mariupol, which traditionally were not known to be, you know, hotbeds of, of Ukrainian identity, uh, uh, Chernihiv, uh, Kharkiv, these people have, have held out. And, and same with the people in Kherson, but it was the, uh, the leadership that um, had uh, uh, cooperators with, with uh, the Russian military who enabled the Russians to come in. Um, so even that, that um, I guess you might say, uh, uh, defeat, if you will, isn't due to uh, the lack of uh, bravery on the part of the, the Ukrainian military as such, and it's not due to the strength of the Russian military. It's simply due to uh, treachery within the ranks, and uh, that's connected to uh, the reason why President Zelensky uh, demoted uh, to, to, to generals. Um, I didn't know about. I don't this. know if they're generals or if they yeah. were uh, high level high level commanders, but they they were demoted, and it was mm-hmm. connected to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In some ways, that uh, and I'm kind of getting off in the weeds on this, but in some ways, that's not. I mean, what had happened that you're referring to um, isn't entirely surprising because you'd think that you know over these years there certainly would be plants in the Ukrainian institutions, namely the military, that were compromised to the the Kremlin. Absolutely. So in in 2014, when Putin first invaded in uh, the Donbass region, and uh, well, they they claimed that they, it was a spontaneous uprising of people's wanting autonomy, you know, Luhansk. The Donbass Spring, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, and then in Crimea, is that had he just kept marching to Kiev and through to the rest of the country, um, he, he would have attained his prize because the Ukrainian military was not up to um, up, up to snuff, so to of speak. Course. And at that time, the uh, the extent of Russian infiltration in the military was total. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, their their intelligence community had um, you know total total um, I'd say penetration of the Ukrainian military, um, but. From, from 2014 onward, there was a, a real um, uh, resurgence in, 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 in the Ukrainian military, is that you know, why are we here and uh, who constitutes the guardians of this nation? Um, and by, by now, uh, those, those traitors have been purged from the ranks uh, almost entirely, with the one exception of down in, in Kherson, as we just spoke about. So it is really a, a nation that... Um, has, uh, in the truest sense, uh, uh, a patriotic army and mm-hmm. uh, a well-trained one at that, perhaps the best in Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and this is the paradox of the situation, is many things in life are 
filled with paradox, but uh, perhaps the greatest uh, force for the unification of a sovereign Ukraine is perhaps Vladimir Putin himself, <laughs> you know. He's, uh, he's been the greatest. Uh, you, know, you have these uh, accelerators you put on fire to, to uh, you know, make a fire bigger. And uh, I think uh, Vladimir Putin perhaps has been the greatest accelerator of, of uh, fraternity and unity in the human family since, uh, uh, you know, since Adolf Hitler, perhaps, is that people are coming out of the woodwork and they're, they're united in, uh, in their resolve to defeat this madman. Yeah. And, and I think this is going to become ever more evident. Um, you know, at the beginning of this war, and we'll, we'll kind of, I want to hit on this topic and then we'll get to the spiritual components of it because there are enormous uh, spiritual dimensions to this conflict. Um, not only the conflict itself, the context in which it takes place, but also its reverberations, of course. And I think everybody, you know, who who hasn't been living under a rock in the last, uh, you know, forty-five days would admit that. Um, the. It was amazing to me how this conflict in particular became a real political lightning rod, um, especially when you take that and then you move it over into contemporary American political divides, right? Um, I think given, given the... The presence of Ukraine in a lot of the political upheaval in the United States, especially with the Trump presidency, in Ukraine being, uh, I wouldn't say it wasn't an accomplice, but it was certainly the the contextual matter for at least one of the impeachment hearings, right? Which, you know, itself proved to be a dud, yep. um, you know, for the Democratic side. Um that already sort of, cre you know, put Ukraine in a light, especially with a lot of conservatives. Um, you know, I, I, not not a lot, but but a portion of conservatives in in America, in a sort of negative way, know, as negative, a, as land negative of corruption and com back, com backroom com dealing, compromise light, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what we're now seeing, though is that if, if, if you didn't really understand this part of the world all that well, right, or maybe, you know, the memories of the Soviet past, or not even that, but the memories of, you know, Russian brutality, you know, in the, in the Chechen war, for example, right. you know, 20 years ago. Um, or in Syria. We, we, yeah, well, just a couple years ago. Um, now, now we're being woken up to a very, very cold shower. Mm. Um, and so uh, the, the revelation of the atrocities that are coming to light, namely in the last week after the Ukrainian army liberated Bucha, right, and Irpin, and all of the surrounding, you know, suburbs of Kiev, um, finding the, uh, you know, mass graves of corpses strewn about in the, in the, throughout the city, you know, hands tied behind their backs. I mean, th this is becoming to the point where, you know, it's being, it's undeniable, mm -hmm. right? Th th this is, this is the Russian way of war. And whatever potential justification or other side of the story that I would think would be drying up very, very quickly, I would hope. I, I would certainly hope that. Um, unfortunately, we have a lot of, I think, commentators um, on the left and on the right um, and everywhere in the spectrum who are uh, vying to have their voices heard because this is the you know the biggest issue on planet Earth right now, and uh, they're they're vying to have their voices heard. It, it's 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 evident though that they just haven't done their homework and they they don't know the lay of the land, they don't know the people, their language, their history, uh, their religious roots, um, and uh, and their trauma over the past century. And so they're opining on the issue of the U Ukraine-Russia war 
through the lens of uh, you know uh, American political polity, through the lens of uh, you know domestic uh, uh, political interests, and uh, all of that obscures the simple uh, facts uh, the facts of the matter. Uh, so we we hope that uh, um, by helping people just just look at the uh, the history of these people and um, their their uh, religious uh, spiritual milieu. Um, will help to lend context to the to the current situation. Yeah, and I think a lot of it too. And like I said, I'm sure we'll be be able to to you know uh, talk about and address these issues in further podcasts. But I think what you're seeing too is the the result of um, sort of narrative or meta narrative about you know global politics that come from, with many grains of truth, by the way, right, but that do come from, um, you know, sort of middle working class conservative folk who have felt disaffected by the system, right? And I share all that, by the way. I think you and I both agree a lot of that disaffection makes sense, right? And so there's a bit of a pushback or more than a bit of a pushback against um, the sort of oligarchic economic and political elite class, right? And the way that narrative is kind of developed, that elite class is, you know, supranational, the globalists, if you will, right? The global economic forum types. the way the narratives have been construed is that Putin and Russia are are not are, are non-aligned actors, right? And in fact, are sort of, you know, the the three hundred pound bodyguard in the room, you know, for all of us who don't have access right. to that institutional power. Um, to use the words of. Uh, uh, Archbishop Vigano himself, he, he, he goes to the extent. Uh, apparently, he's become a, a muscophile uh, messianist now, but yeah. uh, of referring to you know Putin and 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 Holy Russia as the Katakon yeah, uh, that Saint Paul refers to in Thessalonians. Unbelievable in Thessalonians, right? So it, it's just what what has happened is there's this entire narrative that's being construed and that narrative cannot be upended by any means even when there's something right in front of us namely a nation that is smaller and weaker right that is nonetheless and not only that has a long history of having its national identity its people uh its legacy and and uh and uh, tradition being harassed and religion being harassed by this larger neighbor, right? And it's right in front of our face right now. And it's becoming more evident in the atrocities that we're discovering. But yet that meta-narrative of, you know, Russia is the katakon, right. the defender of, you know, true people of goodwill, that has to stand. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is is simply out of um, uh, shell shock and despair. Shell shock in the acceleration of the decline of the West in the past century. All of the institutions that we had, um, you know, a uh, little over a century, the beginning of the First World War, uh, had stood for a th- you know a thousand years. You know, the houses of Europe and. Uh, uh, all the institutions associated with it, um, and that that afforded us, it, it insinu, it, it insulated us intellectually, culturally, spiritually, and uh, it was um, a petri dish, mm-hmm. in which uh, you know this this culture that we call Christendom was able to flourish, mm-hmm. um, and from the time of the end of the First World War. Uh, up until our own day, all of those institutions have been stripped away, mm-hmm. uh, right down to the very inner core, which is the, the Christian family and um, the nuclear family. And so the, the, the last kind, the last remaining voice 
which has spoken on the public international forum about the need to defend family has been Vladimir Putin. And uh, he did it out of, I think, natalist uh, uh, policies just because Russia is in demographic freefall. But he's been on record, you know, speaking about, uh, you know, the need to defend uh, the family and whatnot. Uh, But we can't be taken in by that because we see that same, uh, you know, tactic being employed by uh, Joseph Stalin uh, mm-hmm. in in the late thirty, in the mid thirties, uh, when he was repudiating the, uh, you know, the kind of the, the the libertinism of Lenin in regard to sexual morality and uh, um, the, you know the Soviet laws liberating abortion and 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 divorce and and what have you, and he saw where it led. And um, so he he began the the, the 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 whole legislative kind of mini revolution in the Soviet Union, beginning with the marriage law in 1936. I think it was 36, uh, may have been 1935, in which he um, you know uh, rolled back uh, the, the divorce. He rolled back um, all kinds of of um, you know liberal liberal policies that that the early Bolsheviks had instituted, uh, simply because he saw that. A nation like that cannot exist. It, it mm-hmm. created absolute chaos. Um, so Stalin does that. That should not automatically cause us to celebrate and think that he's a he's a pro life um, uh, you know pro life defender. That wasn't the case. It was simply a you know a, um, a form of uh, survival and uh, calculation uh, for for uh, nation building so that he could have more you know more soldiers in his in his, in his ranks and more workers in his uh, in his uh, factories. And I think that uh, Putin has is, is playing along those exact same lines. It's kind of a neo-Stalinist uh, nationalism, um, truly a form of fascism, you know. Um, which you know, which Lenin, or which Stalin and Hitler were were um, you know of one accord on uh, original signatories. Yeah, yeah you know, right. and so uh, this and and it was never really repudiated. You know, this is they right. they they turned uh, they turned against Hitler because Hitler Hitler uh, attacked them, um, but Russia never came out and said to the world, "Sorry that we were you know we were uh, you know partners with with Hitler." Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is what we're seeing is just a, a continuation of that, of that in a similar vein of uh, pro-natalist policies uh, from Russia. And uh, we who have been uh, shell-shocked in the West have, um, you know, I think bought into the temptation to see Vladimir Putin as some kind of bulwark to push back against the uh, you know the the uh, the liberalism of Belgium, the liberalism of Manhattan, mm-hmm. and uh, they it, it's it's simply wrongheaded because if uh, things are not as they seem, he is uh, and he's demonstrated this just by the past month um, that he simply has no value for life as a gift from God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, you see it now in his um, sort of regrouping and re-strategies that. Can't speak this re-strategization. Way. Re-strategization uh, with the war. Not only, you know, switching his military, cha- you know, transferring his military assets and personnel to an eastern attack, eastern approach, but his recent appointment uh, of uh, the chief of operations for the whole Ukrainian theater now, Dvornikov, right? Um, which. Who you had know, the who had the Syrian operation? Yeah, he's known as the butcher of Syria. Which, in some ways, I, you know, when I'm reading some of the military analysts on this, they're like, "Well, what's the big deal? They're all butchers." Right? Mm. I mean, this is this is the Russian way of war. It's not. It's not. Um, oh, you know, we're going to carry out our military objectives with disregard for civilian. Ca- uh, um, collateral, right? No, no, no. Civilians are the target, yeah. right? Like, the, there's no collateral, no, right? That yeah. That's part of the war. In fact, I think even in an essay he wrote for uh, one of the major, probably it was RAI Novosti a couple years ago, he even said the whole purpose of warfare is to inflict enough force on your opponent, and, and the opponent includes both military as well as civilian yep. core. 
that you break them to your will. Yep. Right? And that, that uses not just uh, <coughs> violence against the civilian population and obviously death against the civilian population, but uh, terror against the civilian population, rape, torture, um, and uh, the, the, the accumulative effect of this, the death, the torture, mm -hmm. the rape, is to break them, as you say. Mm -hmm. Or even just, even more so, to depopulate the area. You know, that's another thing. Uh, I was just, uh, actually, it was one of the news articles I was reading. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, actually. And one of the points of strategically why, because early on we were hearing how they were hitting medical facilities, right? And one of the points that was being made of why they go after the medical facilities is the fact that one, the people that you do injure, maim, that are still alive, they can't seek out medical attention. Mm -hmm. And then those who maybe aren't realize, I can't stay around here. I got to go. So you displace all of those people. And look, the reality is Putin knows now he lost the first phase of the battle. He cannot take Kiev. Right. He will not be able to. And, take and he hasn't Kiev. taken one major city. And he hasn't taken one major city. I mean, you can't even count Mariupol is having been taken, though it's completely surrounded. Right? Yeah, the, the battalion, the Azov battalion is still there. And, yeah, and the Marines, the Ukrainian Marines are still fighting, having their supply lines cut for yeah. God knows how many days. I mean, I don't know how they're, I have no idea how they're holding up. But um, this has now moved to a point where he is not going to have Ukraine as the crown jewel as part of the, you know, Druzhba Narodiv, right? Yeah. The the or Druzhba Narodov, yeah. I should say in Russian. You know, the friendship of nations. He's not going to have that. And so now it's an issue of um, I don't know, depopulating to the point where maybe he can get some concessions to get that eastern corridor of the Donbass from Kharkiv down to ideally Odessa, right? Um, and then almost treat it like a Lebensraum where he moves, yeah. you know, Russians in. Uh, I mean, that's clearly part of the game plan of the Soviet plan. That's how they... I just don't know how yeah. he's going to do it because, you know, you see in, in Siberia that they have no... They have very, very few young people in Siberia. Right. They they don't have a surplus population. They have... There's a, you know, a, a net population loss in Russia. Right. Uh, highest abortion rate in the world. Um, you know, one, one of the lowest life expectancy rates for males in the um, in Europe. Uh, highest HIV rate in the planet outside of uh, the uh, continent of Africa. Um, and uh, so he's in demographic freefall. Uh, so if he's if he is seeking to depopulate eastern Ukraine, uh, which he seems to be doing, uh, with his you know, bombing campaign and uh, the the deportation of over hundred thousand children from Ukraine mm -hmm. and into Russia mm -hmm. so far, um, then uh, where where is he going to get people to put them? Is he going to take them from um, his cities, which are already suffering from a brain drain? You know the the uh, the professionals of Russia and the uh, the young people of Russia have been uh, fleeing Russia for 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 quite a while now. None of their the children of the elites live in Russia. You know, mm -hmm. they, they all live in, in uh, London, or they call it London Stand now. Uh, they, they live in Miami. They live New in York. Switzerland, New York, what have you. You know, Lavrov's daughter lived in the United States. She doesn't even speak uh, uh, Russian, from what I'm told. She doesn't speak well, Russian very well, you know, because she, she spent most of her life in, in New York. I think she went to Columbia. or um, mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, this is, is a thumbnail sketch of uh, even Putin's own daughters don't live right they yeah haven't lived in Moscow for years they, two of his daughters one I know was married to a Belgian I think and now, a, now Dutch, a Dutch man Dutch yeah, yeah yeah so the, the point being <clears throat> is that they have a demographic problem and right. so if they move people from Russia into newly acquired lands in eastern Ukraine then that doesn't solve their <laughs> their demographic problem in Russia it mm -hmm. exacerbates it so um, um, maybe the the part of the game plan is to you know steal people from um, from Ukraine 
and to you know populate those areas of Russia which are in need of, of workers mm-hmm. uh, like the East. And so there's the rumor, it's unconfirmed, but you know these Ukrainians who are going through these uh, um, uh, filtration camps mm-hmm. um, are, are then put into, into Russia and there's a rumor that some of them are being put out into the Far East. Mm-hmm. So um, who knows what he's doing, but it, it's certainly creating uh, havoc for these for these families in eastern Ukraine and throughout all of Ukraine, well, old vices die hard, or they don't die at all. That's you what know. that's what Stalin did. I mean, yeah, with with the Crimeans, the Ukrainians, right. as they simply took them and they sent them re, re, into the interior, repopulated them. Uh, you know, mass population demographic yep. transfers. Yep. We have about ten minutes, Father. So I, I want to make sure that this podcast doesn't finish without, uh, I think, addressing um, the real matters of this, is the spiritual uh, dimension of this conflict. Um, of course, in terms of affiliation, uh, we're, you, you're a priest of uh, the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church. I'm a layperson. Uh, so this is a matter that obviously hits close to home, if only for the fact that both of us are married to Ukrainian women um, from this from Western Ukraine. Um, so obviously this hits close to home. Even beyond that, it's more than just a peace and justice issue, right, of, of uh, supporting a vulnerable people uh, with whom we are religiously uh, affiliated with uh, who are suffering from the rampages and demonic onslaught of uh, a completely unjust and unrighteous war against them. Mm-hmm. But this has religious connotations, namely, we know very well, and our co-religionists in Ukraine are very, very well aware um, that uh, the relationship of the of, of of Moscow, of the Kremlin, with Catholics who are uh, of the Byzantine tradition, but in union with Rome, um, it, it is is a brutal, pretty brutal history. And of course, uh, not only in the course of Russian Tsarist history, where on numerous occasions, wherever the Russian Empire uh, expanded or found itself uh, occupying on uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic territory, the church was always persecuted always repressed. But the most significant of those uh, is, you know, 80 years ago, 80, 85 years ago, uh, when our church, immediately following World War II, uh, was entirely liquidated by the Stalinist regime in Western Ukraine. Uh, All of our bishops were almost overnight rounded up uh, if they weren't killed immediately, they were sent to the Gulag, where most of them died, with the exception of uh, our intrepid patriarch at the time, Yosef Slipe, who, uh, through grit and the grace of God, uh, endured that hell on earth. Um, and our church produced some of the most martyrs that any single national church had produced in any age of the church at any time. Our church, in fact, throughout majority of the 20th century, was the largest single religious community of resistance in the world. It was, yeah, from 46 until 91. Um, churches are like stars in that if they you know, fulfill their God-given mission, they emit energy and light to those around them. Um, and so you think of, for example, you know, the Metropolitan of the Ukrainian Catholic Church from 1901 to 1990, uh, 1944, uh, Metropolitan Andrew Sheptitsky, who was uh, decidedly Ukrainian in his uh, identity, and um, he promoted and elevated Ukrainian cultural linguistic causes, and he was first and foremost, however, a man of the cloth, a man of Jesus Christ, and a great father of, of Christians. Uh, throughout his whole era. However, he never used the church as a means to, to, to ethnicize the peoples around him. Um, he, he loved the Poles, although they mistreated him. He loved the Jews. 
He loved the uh, Hutzels. He loved uh, the Russians that he came into contact with. And uh, through him, uh, many, uh, many people came to a, a membership in, in the Ukrainian Catholic Church. I think of um, uh, Cyril Korolevsky from France. Uh, and uh, these people uh, really came to see the light of the gospel of Christ embodied in a man of the church. And without having to, um, in any way, forego their own national identities. So this is an example of Christian patriotism, where uh, the the light of a particular nation is elevated and it lifts up everyone around them. Uh, the the opposite of that, and is is that of the, the the current situation with the you know the patriarch of the of the Russian Orthodox Church, and the opposite of a sun, as you all know, is a black hole, and the black hole you know collapses in on itself. And this is what we see with the kind of the philatist heresy of the Russian Orthodox Church, is that instead of using their their platform as a means to emit light and energy to the rest of the nations around them, uh, their identity collapses in on itself, and their church becomes a means to a national end, um, and and through that. The, the, the net result is going to be that they will have neither uh, uh, a church nor a nation. And this is what we're seeing with, uh, with the Russian Orthodox, is that it's simply a, a shell used to promote um, a very narrow idea of, of nation, which at the end of the day, um, it's not Christian patriotism, but it's, it's a form of, of pagan nationalism devoid of Christ, and it, it, it results in the uh, destruction of, of one's neighbor instead of the upbuilding of one's neighbor. But the, the, the thing that our world needs now is to know the story of authentic Christian patriotism, um, and I think that the Ukrainian church is, is a very good example for modern man, because you have an example of lay people, nuns, priests, bishops, who laid down their lives for their faith, and uh, they were uh, a, a light to the nations. They were a light to those in the, in the, in the uh, gulag with them. Uh, you can look at the role that Father uh, Zaritsky, uh, blessed uh, Zaritsky, sorry, he was beatified by John Paul II in 2001. You can look at the... The, the spiritual the, the, father, by the way, of uh, Bishop Athanasius well, Schneider. Well, this is what I'm getting to, yeah, yeah, just that, is that you can look at the role that, that Blessed uh, Zaritsky played in the life of this you know, these German, uh, this German family in Kazakhstan with the last name Schneider, is that he didn't insist that they become uh, Ukrainian Catholic or that they become Ukrainian nationalists or anything like that. No, is that he was very proud of his identity, his heritage, and uh, but first and foremost, he existed for Jesus Christ, and it was through that that he became the spiritual father, not just to bishop, future bishop uh, uh, Athanasius Snyder, but to so many people uh, in in Central Asia. Uh, so this is this is the really the, the mission of our church here in in the world, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, is that people need to see uh, in Brazil in Argentina, in the United States, in Australia, uh, what does it mean to have this authentic love for one's nation? Because you know, we open this with that prayer from Psalm 67, uh, the nations are called to praise God. And what happens when there is a nation that praises God is that it, it just elevates all the other ships in the harbor. Um, and this is, this is the unique gift of the Ukrainian church in our world today, because the, the Ukrainian church is perhaps one of the last, maybe one of the only churches left on the face of the earth, which holds to that authentic piety of the Christian soul, while also uh, holding to uh, the ancient traditions of their people. Um, and we, we've seen in the past uh, century that so many of those uh, traditions have been stripped away. The faith that held them together and uh, all of the other traditions that derive from it. The Ukrainians are different. They have managed to hold on to this through the Soviet winter. And uh, through this, you have uh, a nation that has the, 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 the strength, the courage, the conviction uh, to withstand uh, the Russian military. And not only to withstand them, but to, uh, uh, to defeat them. Well said.
You know, I don't think I could uh, offer any further words to end that. That I think uh, that is that is very very well said. And of course, uh, Father, you know, we could talk for hours upon this. There's a lot to uh, to reflect upon and to pray about and to discern. And of course, we hope and pray that uh, we'll have the opportunity to do that, God willing, uh, as we move forward in the coming days. Uh, Father, why don't you offer a final blessing uh, for ourselves, our parish, our families, but also those that uh, have kindly joined us on this recording, uh, especially now as we approach the holiest several days of the year, the Blessed Triduum of our Lord's Passion. Offer a prayer for us until we meet again. Lord our God, we ask that you provide for us in our anguish, that you forsake us not as we enter into the mystery of your son's agony and his death. Our own thoughts turn to those walking through the valley of tears in this life with us who themselves are carrying that cross of anguish, that cross of being forsaken, that cross of being destroyed and tortured and lowered into the pit of death. Lord, do not deliver us, or do not, do not hand us over, rather, to such despair and to such hopelessness. You are the father of the fatherless, and you are the protector of widows. You are God, and you, Lord, everyone. You are Lord over everyone. You give the desolate a home to dwell in, and you lead out the prisoners to prosperity. We ask you, Lord, as we prepare our hearts and minds for the events of Holy Week, that you would lead us into the safe harbor of your will and allow us to dwell in your inner chambers with your risen Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father, for those words. And thank you so much for joining us on Martirio Podcast. Friends, we pray for you and thank you for uh, spending this time together. We look forward to doing this again very soon. And so we pray that you and yours may live out a life of holiness, pursuing Christ himself and also giving witness to he who is the light of life. Goodbye for now.